I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if this podcast is helpful to you, come join us at the Digital Commerce Alliance. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. Welcome to the new Commerce Code, launched along with the new school year in this first week after Labor Day. We've got new school shoes on, and our research team is sporting a fresh box of pencils and some snazzy new trapper keepers. We're going to focus their attention on a few big stories in digital commerce each week. And as in the past, we'll be interviewing the leaders in the field of digital commerce. This week on Commerce Code, Dan is talking with Mladen Vladic from FIS. They're looking back at a wild year for crypto and looking forward to what's ahead for cryptocurrencies, customers, and banks. They'll also catch up on another alternative currency with a lot of fans these days, Pay with points, an area where Mladen has lots of experience. Before we get to that interview, though, we're going to stick with the crypto theme today and dig into two big stories related to blockchain. First, California's digital financial assets law. Will it make crypto entrepreneurs move to Texas or create a better environment for crypto to grow in the Golden State? Second, Ticketmaster's deal to use utility NFTs to let fans do more than just buy an event ticket from Ticketmaster. All that and more is just ahead. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Vantage Score. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. California's legislature has led the way on several social and economic issues in recent years, while the U.S. Congress struggles to pass major legislation on difficult issues. One memorable example is data privacy, where California is arguably America's most influential regulator since the state legislature passed the California Consumer Privacy Act in September of 2018. Now, Sacramento seems poised to become a leader in crypto regulation, too. Last week, the California state legislature passed the Digital Financial Assets Law, the bill awaits Governor Newsom's signature. Under California law, the governor has until September 30th to decide. There are surely more than a few lobbyists who will be trying to get to him in the next 23 days. If it becomes law, the digital financial assets law would require major crypto exchanges to be licensed by the state of California, and only certain approved stablecoins would be tradable. Overall, the law would require crypto exchanges to operate more like traditional financial exchanges with licensing and regulation backed up by civil and potentially criminal enforcements for violations. Of course, many legislators support the bill, but needless to say, at least some folks in the crypto community oppose it on the premise that regulating crypto like a conventional financial asset would drive innovators out of California. Governor Newsom had put out an executive order earlier this year to create a balanced regulatory framework that would be good for both consumers and innovators. 
so we may have to wait and see what the governor chooses to do. It's not that cryptocurrencies are unregulated in every state unless a law is passed, since state laws define in various ways what money is or what securities are, and some of them regulate trading in those things. There are laws already relating to crypto, but what California might get here is what New York has had since 2015 when it instituted the Bit License, a system of intentional regulation tailored to crypto. In NFT news, Ticketmaster announced last week that it has added a capability for event organizers to issue digital collectibles on the blockchain, generally known as NFTs, to fans before, during, or after an event. An earlier version of this technology was used to issue NFTs to every attendee of this February's Super Bowl, with the holder's seat number appearing on his or her unique NFT. This feature can also allow ticket holders to access loyalty rewards. The announcement is just one of hundreds of developments in the NFT space happening every month. It's a creative environment with a lot of possibilities. One observation about this development is that it lines up with one of the theoretical benefits of the blockchain for artists, which is that they can be paid more consistently for their work because of the decentralized nature of blockchain technologies. Whether that happens in this case remains to be seen, but whether it's the musicians or the artists who create the NFTs, there would appear to be an additional revenue stream here, at least some of which could end up with the artist. So, that's California crypto regulation and NFTs at Ticketmaster. Next up, crypto after the crash. In this week's interview, Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, talks about the past and future of crypto and banking with Mladen Vladic of FIS. Last year, Mladen, we talked about cryptocurrency. If mobile banking is perhaps an area that has been so promising and, and also has delivered on that promise over time, cryptocurrency is less incremental, I guess I'd say, and much more volatile across certainly the last few years. So let me set the stage a little bit on the cryptocurrency conversation because I'd love to get an update on where we're at. Last, you talked with Silvio, and this was in May, episode 60 of Commerce Code. FAS had just announced support for cryptocurrency. MasterCard and Visa had just done the same. Coinbase had just gone public. After that, Bitcoin peaked at $60,000 in November of last year. Super Bowl 2022, if you can remember that long ago, that was eight months ago, was just completely covered in cryptocurrency ads from Coinbase, FTX, eToro, Crypto.com. And it's hard to remember that because of what happened in June. And then through July, there was the crypto crash. And that's arguably the third or at least the third crypto crash. So it's not like it's new, although probably a lot of people, it's the first one they've been aware of, right? Because maybe they weren't paying attention before. I think Bitcoin has kind of stabilized somewhere in the 20,000s in terms of price. A lot of stuff has changed. So all of that is just kind of set up to where are things at with you guys? So FIS was equipping your customers to more easily use crypto in their bank accounts to spend it, et cetera. I'm curious, you know, how did that go initially? Because of course, from then through this boom lasted through November at least, and, and arguably through May of this year. And then, you know, what has happened kind of since the crypto issues that happened in the, in the early summer? Cryptocurrency, as you know, as you alluded to usage, has dramatically increased once the darling of the dark web Bitcoin has, you know, gone mainstream. What I find very interesting and what I believe that many people kind of tend to forget 
is that there are actually some 5,100 cryptocurrencies in the market today. And, you know, we tend to talk about you know, only a couple of them. And we have seen a tremendous activity and demand for the services in terms of either, you know, merchant acceptance or the settlement and the transaction processing when it comes to crypto capabilities. I would say that our pipeline still remains very strong, but we certainly are seeing that the adoption slow down. And there have been pauses, as I alluded to, there have been pauses in the past, really in all technology sectors, right? I mean, whether you're talking about silicon chip manufacturing or you're talking about artificial intelligence, right? The people who follow AI you know, can document what they call AI winters, periods of time when investors and others are kind of not, not that interested in it and then they come back to it. And so if you're talking about cryptocurrency as a potentially core technology, granted that there's always um, skeptics out there who, who think that this stuff is as lacking in basis as, I don't know, a fiat currency that isn't backed by, you know, gold ingots or something. They might be right about that. It's just that it turns out that everything at some level is a fiat currency. And so there is an ongoing trajectory for it. And we're experiencing, you know, right now a momentary assessment of, okay, what's going on? I'd be interested to get your perspective and you, you may not right now know or be able to say, but do you have any angle on what crypto offerings you think will be coming in the next year or two? Well, I would say it's extremely difficult to make that call. I would say, as I think about them, you know, you alluded to that crypto winter that I believe is the period that, you know, we are potentially going through right now. I would argue at the end of the day, what we all need to keep in mind is that it's been only 14 years. And I say purposely only 14 years since Bitcoin was invented. And I think about the concept of the evolution to your point. It takes more than 14 years for many of the major trends to take root and go completely mainstream. And I would say at the end of the day that the whole industry, if you will, is in its infancy and constantly evolving. I do believe that in coming months, the key is going to be potentially regulation is going to impact this industry and then how institutional adoption is going to continue to progress. Part of the pause on crypto is, I think, all the action from governments, right, where they're paying attention in a, in a way that's much more active now than it has been in the past on crypto. And so you've got this central bank digital currency movement from China, for example, and, and certainly discussion and, and action from others on that stuff. Then there's the question of you know regulatory, just the, the basic agency fights in the United States about who's responsible for this, who's going to regulate it. And so I think right now, part of the pause is, is getting some of that stuff worked out because there's a great deal of uncertainty around what's going to happen next from a legal and regulatory perspective to be sure, and dealing with things like the rapid, well, instantaneous, I guess, disinvestment in China from crypto mining or Bitcoin mining anyway, just due to a government decree that came out one day. And that was kind of that, right? It was all over. So really interesting times in this area, but we will look forward to seeing what FIS and other companies are able to do in terms of supporting the area because it's going to move forward. I want to jump to just one last little area to pick up on. Looking back at your conversation with us again about a year ago, you talked a little bit about pay with points. And I, in conversation with other executives just on a regular basis, you, you hear about the way that things are integrating and moving forward. And I continue to feel in this area that I guess I just don't know where it's going to go precisely. But there seems like you know more interoperability and more usability of the points that people are getting. And I'd love to just hear from your vantage point, you know, 
what have we seen change about pay with points? You know, we went through kind of the boom at the end of 21 into maybe a high inflation, maybe pre-recessionary 2022. Is that impacting or is something else maybe impacting how people are, are using, collecting, spending their points? As I think about this space over the course of the last four or five years, and then specifically since the beginning of the pandemic for the last two, two and a half years, we witnessed just only more adoption by market players and certainly by consumers. As we think about the loyalty currency in general and the experiences that are being created for the consumer out there, I would say the number one guiding principle is how do we collectively as the industry remove the friction from that redemption experience. And to further that, combining the loyalty currency and almost acting as another payment tender and combining that with the card present or card not present payment tender as cardholders are checking out. And so when you layer inflation that we are witnessing over the last couple of quarters, it becomes very evident why those types of redemptions are so popular. So if you think about the gas prices, you know, being $5 an average a couple months ago and having the ability to pay with the loyalty currency for some of that increase to lessen the impact on the family budget. So I do believe that to summarize, if you think about removing the friction, improving the buying power by almost becoming a separate payment tender, and then think about the inflationary pressure, all of those factors, I would say, are driving increased adoption of this functionality. You know, with pay with points, I've always thought one of the things that is kind of hard to explain to, you know, explain to your kids, right, when they're taking econ in high school or college is, what does it mean to say that a currency fluctuates in value? And, you know, at some level, it's kind of simple, right? Like the explanation ends up being, look, the Canadian dollar becomes more valuable when more people want or need to use it in order to get stuff that requires the Canadian dollar. So it's lumber or it's shale oil or whatever. And so it's as simple as supply and demand. And the thing about points is it's a currency. Points are valuable to the extent that people need or want to acquire them and then use them for stuff that they want to get. And your point about friction is right, which is that people will value the thing more. They'll want to use it more if it's easier to use. And then obviously it gains value when it can be used in a broader range of, of applications, right? There's more different things you can use it for. So, you know, there, there's a real stewardship aspect with points programming as to how do we make these points, you know, as valuable as we can. And we tend to think about points value in terms of what kind of decreed about, you know, how many points it takes to get a, a flight or whatever is the classic example. But there's just the other aspect of, look, what is the basic consumer demand and psychology around this thing? How easy is it to use? And then how many different things can I use it on? And that's probably the big driver there of the value of the thing, just as it is with a traditional fiat currency from a government. You're absolutely right. I would say as an industry, we traditionally thought of points, if you will, as a value, value-added service that is given to the consumer for being loyal to the brand and then transacting or whatever the earning mechanism looked like. And to your point, what I believe we did as the industry over the last couple of years, we almost monetized that value by making it fully become a currency that can be used for their everyday spend. And I think that in a in the eyes of consumer, it's an appreciation for letting me use the value that was always there in a different way, in a more convenient and frictionless way. And, and that's what I believe is explaining, you know, what we are witnessing in the marketplace. 
there are things that you can do to appreciate the value of the currency that you've already issued is part of this, I guess. Well, look, I'll wrap it here, Mlad, and we could talk uh, obviously a lot longer about this stuff, but this has been a great conversation, just picking up on some of the themes that we touched on last year. Grateful for your time and your insights on these things. And we look forward to, well, I look forward to visiting that that new building that you mentioned down there in Jacksonville when it's warm there and, and not warm here. Hey, thank you, Dan. As always, I appreciate and enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Coming right up, final thoughts on the where and why of crypto. Join other members of the Digital Commerce Alliance on Tuesday, November 15th at the DCA Summit in Washington, D.C. We're creating a day-long conference focused on innovations in card linking, mobile wallets, and financial data for executives at DCA member companies. Mark your calendar for November 15th and stay tuned to Commerce Code for more details. Last week, it was reported that Afghanistan's Taliban regime was arresting cryptocurrency dealers, and the National Bank had instituted a nationwide ban. It's not hard to see why someone might want to be able to store and trade value freely in a repressive environment like Afghanistan, where the government can take anything it wants on a whim. Crypto has become a popular way of moving money in and out of the country, which is shut off from the global banking system due to sanctions that came in after the Taliban took over. It's also easy to see why a regime like the Taliban would want to shut crypto down, since it takes so much power out of the government's hands. Another country that has banned cryptocurrency altogether is China. Beijing is rolling out its own digital currency, an official central bank-issued crypto and it remains to be seen how well it will do. But one thing it's guaranteed to do is to track usage perfectly and to identify it back to the user, since China's government initiatives in recent years have all been aligned around the goal of precise and total surveillance. In China, as the country becomes more insular and currency controls more strict, the surreptitious use of crypto might become a channel for avoiding the authorities, like it was, and probably still is, in Afghanistan. One surprising detail from the Afghanistan story is the list of countries where crypto is most heavily used. According to the blockchain research firm Chainalysis, the top country for crypto use is Vietnam. Why would that be? It appears that crypto became a popular way for people with jobs outside the country to send money back to their relatives in Vietnam. These remittance payments spurred adoption of cryptocurrencies more generally, and led to a lot of crypto investments and other uses. At least, that's one explanation. But remittance payments are huge in lots of countries, so why would they lead to widespread crypto adoption in Vietnam, but not in other countries? According to the World Bank, for example, India receives annual remittance payments seven times the value of those received in Vietnam. But crypto is less than half as prevalent in India as it is in Vietnam. There are many potential explanations here. Distrust of the local currency, a cultural acceptance of relatively risky or volatile assets, rates of digital adoption, and more. The one thing that's surely true is that a robust subculture within Vietnam came to support crypto adoption for a bundle of different reasons, and those reasons may remain a subject of debate. Whatever is causing crypto to be so popular there Vietnam might be a great market for crypto innovation. 
If you're tempted to invest in something along those lines, just remember one last fact about cryptocurrencies in Vietnam. They're illegal. Commerce Code is a weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practices. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.